Good learning listeners, and welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. We really have an exciting episode today. We are interviewing John Hattie. John Hattie is a world-famous education researcher who has examined the impact size of different teaching factors and then compared them. His work has allowed us to make quantitative and definitive judgments about what are the most evidence-based teaching practices. Unfortunately, we're having some technical difficulties, difficulties during the interview, and the audio quality of John Hattie is not that great. However, you can put up the difference in quality. We guarantee that the episode will be well worth your listen. John Hattie has been a primary resource for us in recording this podcast, and he's been also an inspiration for our uh, direction of this podcast. But before I, I ruin trying to summarize John Hattie's work, I'm going to give John Hattie an opportunity to explain himself, or to introduce himself and explain his own research a little bit. Thanks, Joseph. I'm a researcher here at the University of Melbourne. Um, I've been in this job now for so many years. In fact, I'm just starting the retirement side of things. I was trained in the measurement statistics area, and I've been always fascinated why everybody that I meet in education tells me they know what truth is, and they know what makes the difference to kids' learning, and they're all so variable. And it's that variability that fascinated me. And so I started on a bit of a hobby, actually, um, collecting the meta-analyses, trying to change the question from what works to what works best and develop some relativity, asked what's a pretty enduring question in our business and that, you know, can you actually do this? Can you actually come up with a single dimension of what works best for kids or does it differ by where you are, the age of the kids, the ability of the kids, the country of the kids? And that obviously is an empirical question that I've answered with a pretty emphatic no. It doesn't really matter. What works best works best with most kids. Um, and uh, ten years ago, I published Visible Learning, which has kind of taken over from my previous research. Um, but now I'm at the stage, as I say, of retirement. I'm in, very much into my grandchildren and all those wonderful kind of things. And uh, really appreciate the fact that we're talking here today um, about research matters because that obviously is what has been very dear to me in my academic life. Yeah. I, I will say I've been taking um, a large number of online courses over the the last couple of years, and I started using your book, Visible Learning, almost as my main textbook, because I often found that other people's textbooks, um, they would often just present the ideas of the author as if they were best practice without ever justifying the claim of whether or not they're best practice. So I started to, to look towards your book to say, oh, well what is the actual research telling us on whether or not these are best practice? Um, and, and that kind of leads me into our next question, which is, what do you see the importance of your research? Look, if I have any single influence um, in the educational community, I, I want to reintroduce the notion of expertise. I want to get away from the debates we have about anyone can be a teacher, a teacher is born. Uh, it's all about what you do. Uh, let's share a resource, let's go in classroom and watch a teacher, uh, let's worry about curriculum, let's get obsessed about assessment, let's get really concerned about spending money on more structures and buildings and shapes and all that stuff and reintroduce this notion that really comes down to the expertise. And I have to say, uh, Joseph, the biggest resistance of that are often the teachers themselves. Just leave me alone, pull up my note, close my door, let me do what I want to do. Um, we're all equal. Um, I know that some teachers aren't as good as other teachers, uh, but I'm doing okay, et cetera, et cetera. And that is just not good enough. We have incredible expertise, and obviously reading the book, you'll see that to do the kind of things I'm talking about requires incredible expertise, and we need to scream that from the rooftops. 
is as I travel around the world and get the privilege of seeing many teachers and schools and right around the world, I, I see that expertise. It's palpable. It's out there. And we need to spread that message. That, to me, is the most important part of what I do. Reintroduce expertise. How do you do it, gently, so that we're not leaving people behind? But you go into every other profession that may have seen expertise and strive for that expertise. And many teachers do that. I want all teachers to do that. I want the system to do that. And I want the parents to recognize, maybe even pay for that expertise. That, that's such a great answer. Uh, I couldn't agree with more with anything you just said. Um, that's kind of the philosophy of our podcast. That's probably, it dovetails so nicely because I think that's kind of our mission statement. And that's why um, your work has been a primary resource for us. And one of the things that we really saw when we, when we went into the research in education is that it, it struck me as being very different from the rigor of the research done in some of the, the other um, fields of study. So like I came primarily from medicine um, before I became a teacher. And I noticed that how a lot of the studies were designed was very different than what would be considered, you know, the norm in, in medical uh, research. So that brings us to our next question. And it would be, you know, what have, what have you seen as the limitations in education research historically? I think the biggest limitations is that we're not standing on each other's shoulders. We're so often reinventing what we do in schools and classrooms as if we're doing it for the first time or it's unique to a particular situation. And I get frustrated with every principal who says, my school's different. I've got 20 languages and 40 nationalities, etc. And you think, get over it, guys. That's the norm. Um, how do we actually focus on, as you were saying, the educational research, which is not... Like we, we have a different discipline to medicine and that we don't have a discipline where we take people and put them in trials or put them in lab schools. Um, and that is a real major um, problem. However, as you can see, I got 300 million kids in my sample. There's an incredible amount of evidence out there. I, I'm not so worried whether it's qualitative or whether it's quantitative. I'm worried about the defensibility of the story. Like I get worried from my science colleagues when they talk about randomized control trials as the gold standard. It ain't the gold standard at all. The gold standard is beyond reasonable doubt. And I would argue that we do have a practice. We do have an evidence base. Quite frankly, that's not the issue anymore. The issue is how we implement and interpret that evidence base. And that's where I think we're in a pretty good situation in educational research. I would, I would love, and what I'm trying to do in my political role here in Australia, to introduce a kind of consumer reports notion in education, where we can have places where we can get this research summarised to high standards and get it interpreted out there. And I'm certainly saying here that the days of evidence should be over. The days of implementing evidence are here. And so, yes, there's been some remarkable limitations. Can you imagine going to a doctor and the doctor saying, I haven't read a research article since I went to medical school 30 years ago? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Unfortunately, some people are proud to say that in teaching, and it's just not good enough. The cottage industry is not good enough. And certainly, like one of our mantras is every kid deserves a great teacher by design, not chance. That design is them being more evidence based. Now, here's the dilemma. Asking teachers to take 
take on and be educational researchers, I think is a, a step too far. I think it's a set of skills that, yet again, we ask teachers to have that are quite specific, quite detailed. And so the argument I'm saying is I want teachers to be evaluators, much better at evaluating the impact they're having on their kids. And I'm trying to switch the whole of the visible learning message to this notion of knowing thy impact. How do you actually know your impact? What do you mean by impact? How many kids are getting that impact? What's the magnitude of that impact? And what's the artifacts you're going to use? And this is where notions like collective efficacy are so powerful. And that's what should be the debate when we meet with other teachers. At the moment, we talk about what we do. We talk about things. We talk about lesson plans. We talk about assessment. We talk about curriculum. And we need to start talking more about our impact. And when you go into schools that are doing this, and let me be frank, there are many schools that are doing this, it's sensational. It's the core of it. So how do you get teachers and schools to be evidence-based in the psychology of thinking? The biggest issue I have is that the policy people don't. At the top, they're much more fickle to the latest gee whiz thing that they've been sold on. And they don't hardly ever invest in evaluation. And when they do, they don't usually like it. It doesn't tell them what they want to know. And so that, to me, is the biggest hole in the evidence-based system of education at the moment. Um, and I'm probably drifting a little bit from your question, but thank you for the opportunity to rant. No, it's okay. We, no, we I, want to hear the rant. Yeah, no, I think that was exactly kind of where we were going. And you actually covered maybe a couple of the questions we were going to follow that up with, which is great. And we actually see that as our, not just our mission statement, but our mission. Our mission really, it's not necessarily uh, to turn all the teachers into researchers, just like you said. We just want to make sure that the teachers understand the importance of the ability to um, determine or distinguish between a good strategy and a poor strategy and that the evidence is the best research resource for that. Yes. And, um, Absolutely. Right, because not all teachers come from a scientific background. A lot of teachers, teachers come from the humanities and the arts. And really all we want them is to understand that just like um, an engineer or a doctor thinks in the terms of the way I best serve my, my, my client um, is to make sure that I'm serving them with the best evidence available. And all I need to know is I don't need to necessarily go out and get that evidence. The evidence already exists. And uh, I just need to be able to discern um, what is good evidence when I see it and how to, and how to get my hands on it. And then of course, how to implement it. Once I, once I, once I see what has been concluded in the research, how do I implement that in the classroom? So those, that, that's kind of what, what we are definitely trying to push as a phenomena in our own industry. Um, really to base that idea around, um, how teachers should view themselves as professionals just like a doctor or an engineer would. Yeah, I, I just want to give a, a follow-up question to you there because there was something interesting that you were touching on that I, I, I wanted to you hopefully explore a little more is you're talking about impacts. So um, I, think I, I think I know what you're coming at there, but I don't know if our, our audience is going to necessarily know. Do you want to talk about what you mean by impacts and measuring impact um, within a classroom environment? Yeah, and, and like as Robert was saying, we're walking the same road here. Um, and, and I don't want the research to be seen as something that's out there and not related to my day job. And knowing that research is the first part of it, and by visible 
about probability standards. There is higher probability of impact if you do this rather than that. But to then go that next step, which we, you were hinting at, Robert, is that I then want to ask the teacher specifically, when you implemented that intervention in your classroom, no matter what it was, what was the evidence that it had, the kind of magnitude of effect that you expected? And I want teachers to think evaluatively in that way. So they not only use the research, they're actually doing that evaluative research on themselves. And so that brings me directly to this notion of impact. And when I say know thy impact, it begs that question. Now, I'm a bit reluctant to answer that question because it's how you answer it. And I want to work with you, uh, Joseph, for example, and say, well, what, what do you mean by at least a year's growth for a year's input? Are you prepared to bring along some artifacts of the same kids' work, say, six months apart, and show me what six months' growth looks like? Are you prepared to let me come into your class and talk with your students about what they mean by what it means to be a learner here? What does growth mean and what does impact on them means? Can you do some uh, perhaps video of your class or some capture of your class and you can illustrate to me what impact means to you? Now, if you think impact means just test scores, I think you've got a pretty barren classroom. If you don't include test scores, I think you've got a pretty barren classroom. I want test scores, I want student voice, I want artifacts, I want that triangulation of evidence about what you mean by impact. Now, when you do that with your colleagues, you need to be very careful when you first do it because you're going to the heart of your sense of what a professionalism and a teacher means. But that's the kind of debate I want to have about impact. I want to include achievement. I want to include, is the school an inviting class, an inviting place for kids to come to? I want to include whether they are curious and want to invest in this thing called learning. I want to include many of those kinds of things. And yes, most of my visible learning work has been about achievement, even though I've brought it a hang of a lot over the last 10 years. I'd have no excuse for having it in there. It is part of the equation. So what we do in our work is we would work with you first, Joseph and Robert, and say, well, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to give you some hints. What do you mean by impact? And then how robust is that impact? And one of the problems we often have is teachers can do that for about five or seven of their students, but the other 23 they can't. So it's impact about what, impact about who, how many, and to what magnitude. And these are, this is the core debate if you're going to make a difference to kids' lives. We find that some teachers have no trouble having this debate. Some teachers resist it and say, come and watch me. Well, how can I, at my age, look at them through the eyes of a five-year-old or a 15-year-old? And it's not what they do, it's how they think and process in that moment to my moment time during the day. And so trying to capture that's very hard, but that's what it's all about. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting what you're saying. Um, I, I, I've really liked to look at what you're talking about there a little bit through the lens of RTI. It's a model I've gotten to be trained on and used in the past, um, which I thought is really effective. And they're just the using learning goals and then using learning goals as sort of anchors of assessment to see yes. to evaluate how many of your students are meeting these learning goals by what time and then collectively with your staff um, uh, marking the assessments to make sure that you're being objective. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's fascinating in this is grad level research is that in any one class on average, 50, 40 to 50% of what the learning goals are the kids know before you start. And so that's mm -hmm. another thing I'll be looking at in impact. Are those goals appropriately challenging? Do the kids think they're appropriately challenging? And do we as colleagues think they're appropriately challenging relative to where the kids are when they walk in? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'd want to do. That's awesome. Um, 
So that, let's kind of get into the weeds a little bit here. Um, what do you see as the margin of error and difference between the effect size and your research? Well, the, the, the person who invented meta-analysis during the last his, his conclusion after many years of seeing meta-analysis is all about that variability. Now, you call it error. I call it the variability because it's not just the margin of errors in the studies. Like in some areas, like take computers and classrooms, there's been 150 meta-analyses. They've all kind of come to the same kind of average conclusion. That's interesting. But what's fascinating is the variability. Like when uh, computers are used more in a social media mode of students talking to each other and talking to the teacher through social media, the effects go up quite a lot. Uh, when it's used for knowledge consumption, um, checking facts, the effect goes down quite a lot. And so that margin of error or that variability, that's where the fascination is. And that's why even in what I've been doing, like when I started this, as you probably have seen in Visible Learning, I had that ranking of 100 and whatever it was, different influences. It's now up to 250, through almost 300 influences. In many ways it worked, it got people's attention. In many ways it didn't work because it implied that each one of them was perfect, each one of them was accurate to the second decimal point and there was no error. Um, looking at those variabilities, like you could take a, an influence, for example, that's very low on the effect size chart. But if you implement it very, very well, and you are getting the impact, why wouldn't you keep doing it? And then I want to understand what that variability is. So yeah, we always should look at that variability, and that's why I'm saying, take my work as probability statements, and then ask, how, how is it working in your class? Like it may be the quality of your implementation. It may be that it's teaching kids stuff that they already know, or it's far too hard for them, and they've given up even trying. That's the kind of variability I care about. Yeah, it's it's funny we've we've talked about your research uh, quite a bit on our podcast, and I think we've both essentially said something very similar. We haven't phrased it the same. We've we're always talking about the word execution. You know, uh, any idea is limited in its uh, efficacy by its execution. If you have a, if you have a great teaching method, it might not work if you're not implementing it correctly. Um, which uh, it's funny because we have actually. Um, I've been following your research for some time and I, I've checked up on your your list every year and I've noticed um, sometimes it, uh, things on the list seem to disappear and we, we've just been actually curious ourselves talking about it. Why do sometimes uh, factors get taken off the list? Is, is it there's not enough research for them uh, in particular or is it, do you think they're of little consequence? Well, I'm intrigued which have fallen off the list because... Um, I don't think any has fallen off this list. However, some have changed their name. That might be it. I was going to ask, maybe it's just that they've changed their name. but Yeah, because as I get, like, I've had a few that I've introduced and then I've read what people have said about what I've written and I've realized I haven't been as clear as I should be. So oh, I've gone back okay. to some, um, like self-reported grades, um, self-expectations, student assessments, capabilities. Those three have been morphing over the years to try and get that message absolutely right because in the early days people misconstrued what I said so I take the blame for that. Uh -huh. um, what I'm doing now in a, in a month or so's time I'm, I'm releasing on a website every bit of data that I've ever collected and one, I'm adding things such as a confidence rating. Like if you have a meta-analysis wow. done on 20 studies yeah. and another meta-analysis done on 2,000 studies, obviously one's going to have more credibility than the other. At the moment they're implied to be equal. So I've invented this confidence rating for meta-analysis. So how confident to be? I take, for instance, um, 
the profession, professional learning, it's dropped considerably over the last 10 years. Now, the explanation for that, I would argue, is that 10 or 15 years ago, we measured the effectiveness of professional development by what teachers claimed was effective. You can't get away with that anymore. We're now much more interested in the impact it has on students. And like, I don't know about you two, but after you go to professional learning, do you go back to your class six or eight weeks later and ask the students if they notice a difference from the fact that you went to professional learning? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. That's one way of looking at the impact on kids. There are lots of other ways. And so in many ways, whilst the effect size has gone down, it's gone down because we've changed our lens looking at it, not necessarily the effectiveness of professional learning has gone down. So those change over time. And what I find interesting is when those changes happen, I try and do an investigation and my more recent works, I try to explain those differences. But I'd hope none have disappeared. Um, it it they, might... It, tell me, but they have changed their name. It, it's probably that they've changed a the name and I just assume that you were looking at them through a slightly different lens. So that that's probably my misinterpretation of your your research there. But I, I think we've kind of hit on something that is like like super, super exciting for me and and for Joseph because we've actually had a lot of debates about this. Um, I don't know if we really talked about it on our podcast before, but um, we were thinking that, you know, we, we talk about effect size and actually I like the word that you're using now for our listeners is think of it like probability, right? Like these, you're giving us a probability of how effective a strategy might be um, if it's implemented in the classroom. Um, but the thing we've always debated about is which which strategy, if there was a rating for how difficult it is for a strategy to be executed properly so that you can get the full effect. And then if you could um, kind of correlate uh, the probability of the effectiveness of that strategy against its difficulty of implementation to to form a new number to show like, you know, where is it best for a teacher that might not have all the implementation skills, like the, the ability to execute at a high level? Where should they put their 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 bet? You know, where should they put their stock, especially as a new teacher? Because I feel like um now this is anecdotal at best. We've we found that a lot of new teachers are far more interested in um understanding what's the best strategy to start with. Whereas teachers later on they become like, what strategy am I most comfortable with? And um yeah. and I think if you put if you put ability of execution with probability of effectiveness together, kind of puts those two mindsets together to form like and we were wondering if maybe you're already working on something like that in your research, but... Well, for both of you, maybe this is something we can work on together, but I've not actually thought of coming up with an index of implementation difficulty. But what I am doing a lot of research on, and you know, as I get older, I'm starting to realize that one of the biggest issues actually is this notion of implementation. And like we've got a, a massive debate here in Australia at the moment. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, the nation's going to election very soon. I'm in the midst of the campaign at the moment, and there are hundreds of millions of dollars promised to build an evidence-based institute. And I'm saying, in my role here in Australia, we don't need an evidence-based institute. We need an implementation of evidence-based institute. Because that notion of implementation, we're not as good at it as we think we are. No. And then one of the reasons we're not as good at it is that 
like me and people who run professional learning, they go in and they say to teachers, here's a new intervention, let's say the teachers are doing it. And they fail to realise that before you even get there, you've got to understand that you, Robert and Joseph, have very strong theories about how you teach. You have an incredible belief system that's worked for you, and your evidence over your last 10 or 20 years of teaching is very strong. And we need to really understand that. And sometimes, and I see this so often with systems that are introduced by the higher up in the, the policy domains, the reason they don't work is because teachers adapt the intervention and the innovation out of the intervention because they try to mold it back to what they were thinking. And this is why I'm really so interested in how teachers think, what their belief systems are. Because if you don't understand that, implementation. And so even if we came up with an index of implementation, it would depend on how conducive that implementation is to your prior beliefs about what you think good teaching is. That's going to be it. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that from a measurement point of view, but wow, it would be a fascinating problem. But it won't be as simple as just having an index of implementation. No, and, and you've got to understand where you start. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. You've been to professional learning and someone says to you, Robert, tell me about your theory of teaching. Because if they don't do that, they're probably wasting their time. I, I, I can't count the number of times I've essentially heard a teacher tell me that they've had so much experience that they feel like their experience is more valuable than any evidence that they could read. Um, I, I'm really interested in this idea, though, of your, your confidence um, index because you know, it's something we were we were looking at recently. We are going through other meta-studies on math instruction in a recent podcast, and uh, we noticed that some of the ideas there were these really high... Um, sample sizes for meta, for meta studies um, and the individual studies included were really high quality but some of the other ones in particular one we were examining the the sample size was really low and then the quality of studies in, in the meta study were really low um, and it, it leads me to my, my follow-up question is just that are uh, because of confidence is there anything on your list that you think maybe isn't as high as it actually ought to be because of execution or poor sample size, or is there anything lower on your list than you think it should be? Yeah, like, in the first book, I, I made a, a comment that I was not going to debate the um, quality of the studies. And unfortunately, some people interpreted that as implying that I didn't care about the quality of the studies, which I, I did. Um, and I have called some of those areas, like, hey, learning styles. Um, the majority of the research in the meta-analysis and the meta-analyses themselves are, 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 are just awful. Mm-hmm. They're embarrassing. Um, they're just full of errors. They're full of mistakes. Going back in some cases the original studies to see how they've done up their meta-analysis. And it's embarrassing how bad some of those are. And so I've called that. I've called some other areas where some of the quality of the meta-analyses aren't so good. Every now and then someone emails me and says, yeah, I've got a problem with this particular meta-analysis and I'm very grateful for those emails because I go back and check. And every now and then I, I will take a meta-analysis out um, of the study, uh, of the whole corpus. In most cases, in fact, in all cases so far, it hasn't made a difference. The learning strategy is one it did, but I called that in the first book. I said, there's a problem here. Um, I left them in, and subsequent work, I've taken some of those ones out. It's one of the most notorious um, cons that have been infested upon schools, um, and studies in general are pretty weak. So yeah, I think we have an obligation to call them when they're bad. Um, some of them should be higher. Yeah, take feedback. Feedback's a classic example. Feedback has an effect size around about 0.75, way up there, pretty powerful. 
prefer to feed back negative. The variability is dramatic. And so I've spent the last 15, 20 years of my life trying to understand that variability issue again. Mm. And the book we just published recently deals specifically with that notion of why is it that the same feedback today doesn't work tomorrow, the same feedback with this kid doesn't work with another kid. That's the most fascinating thing. Can you imagine if we could solve the variability, imagine that 0.75 would go up dramatically. So yeah, those are the fascinating things. And so the last time, there's not a lot um, we but it's interesting because I that that exp- one of the ones I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about ones disappearing was I believe uh, on your previous list you had listed uh, feedback under descriptive feedback and I noticed this year you just changed it to feedback and I, I thought maybe you were qual- uh, qualifying them as different things so I wasn't sure about that so maybe this is well, one of the ones you're talking about changing feedback's more generic mm-hmm. um, concept and then within feedback there are so many different forms and that's what I'm saying about the variability yeah. So in our more recent work on feedback, we've tried to go down in a lot more detail on that. But it serves as a reasonable, useful uh, coat hanger at the top. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting... One we were we were curious about in particular is um, RTI, because uh, RTI uses so many high-yield strategies on your list. And when I hear you talk about how you would like people to um, uh, see their impact as... It really, it sounds very similar to me to our RTI, um, but RTI has almost every year it appears to me be ranked four on your list, and it just always seems to be beaten out by other things. And collective uh, teacher efficacy is really built into RTI, but it it alone has beat um, RTI on your list by quite a quite a large margin. And I was just curious if you have any thoughts on why. Well, certainly, a lot of the visible learning message is exactly the same as the RTI message. One of my troubles with RTI is that it's often seen as uh, for special needs kids. Mm. I would argue it should be for every kid. And last year in South Carolina, I met the gentleman who was responsible of enshrining it in the legislation in the um, early um, Bush days. And I thanked him. I said, it's wonderful. And he said, no, it's starting to fail. Too many teachers are shoving kids from tier one to tier two far too quickly. And this is the whole point. And so there are some issues with RTI in terms of... um, how it's being implemented that we need to address because up with you, I think it's a very, very powerful method. It sums up very similar the notion of, like, it's very simple. You're looking at the response to your intervention. You're knowing your impact. Yeah. Absolutely powerful. And so I just worry, and I have no trouble with tier one, tier two, tier three. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did in New Zealand a few years ago is we, we fired every single educational psychologist and social worker in every school. And then we rehired them on the basis that they'd only work with teachers. But never went with the kids. And for when it's actually in place like that, it's a stunning success. Because the whole idea is that kid has to go back into that classroom. How do you teach the teacher to deal with that kid? Now, it's probably too strong to say you should never have a meet a kid. That's probably too strong, certainly at tier three. But more work at tier one to tier two, and one of the successes of RTI would be to be how many kids are not transferred from tier one to tier two. Can you reduce that? And let's be fair to teachers. Those kids can be incredibly disruptive. They can be very hard to work with. Sometimes you might not get the impact you'd want from some of those kids. How do we get resources into the classrooms to help those teachers work with those kids? And when you put all that together, that is the visible learning message too. Wow. Um, I think one of the things we really caution our listeners on um, through this podcast is this idea of the silver bullet because we find that 
a lot of teachers, when they do become interested in research, what they tend to look for is this one strategy, this catch-all that's going to be the strategy that's going to break through and solve all of their teaching problems, all of their education problems. And uh, we really warn our listeners against that. Um, but that still begs the question now that we have someone that's dove into all the meta studies and looked at the analysis. Um, do you see possibly in the future a strategy coming to the surface, whether it's a, a strategy that might be lower on the list now, kind of sleepy because the execution is not there, but if the execution was there, do you see a strategy that might um, present itself in the future as kind of like a game changer, something that will affect the most students positively? Yeah, I know. I do have an answer for that, but it will upset a lot of people. It's okay. Um, if you look at direct instruction, now I know it's grossly misinterpreted as didactic instruction, which it's not, but if you look at those explicit instruction methods, they are systematically incredibly powerful. I remember when Visible Learning was published, the guys from Oregon who run the direct instruction in, in America wrote to me and said, isn't it wonderful, blah, 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 that direct instruction came out very well. And I wrote back and said, yes, but you need to change your name because it's so misinterpreted. I got a very icy response to that and they never changed their name. We have changed the name. We talk about teacher clarity. And in many ways, if you look at the work on teacher clarity, there's a number of books out there now on teacher clarity. It is direct instruction reinvented. Uh, it is explicit instruction. I also find here in Australia, when people run around the country and implement different kinds of explicit instruction methods, they then fight with each other about their methods better than their, their, their competitors' method, which isn't helping at all. Now, direct instruction or clarity of instruction isn't about following a script. It is about worrying about the degree to which your success criteria are clear to students. It is worrying about whether your diagnosis of what the kid actually brings to the classroom in terms of the skill, will, and the thrill uh, is, is known to the teacher. It is about making sure that those mastery notions to the success criteria are important. It is about engaging in deliberate practice and guided behavior. It is about the teacher having an incredible amount of control of the classroom, but making the students more like the teachers. And I think there's so much there. So in many ways, yeah, we do know the answer, but we may need to repackage it. And maybe that's what a lot of educational research does repackages with different names. I hope that's not simply what I've done, even though if you go back and read Guadalupe Ferrari, if you read Madeline Hunter, if you read that response to intervention, you'll find the same messages. If you read Bob Pisano's work, you'll find the same messages going throughout. It's how we get that narrative. So now I'm not sure a one will, a new one will come, um, even though I think there's a lot of technology that we've not even started with, the artificial intelligence that's now, now currently available that we could use in the class to help make our job better. It's going to be a bit of a game changer when we get that right. But right at the moment, we do know a fair amount about what works, and it's about how we package it. Okay, so I definitely have to back that question up um, with another question, because what we have done, even though, you know, we we haven't done any of our own primary research, so we, we make sure that our listeners know that, and we feel like that's okay because we represent as teachers, the same audience we're trying to we're trying to talk to, we represent the teachers that are looking for 
um, the type of professionalism as a teacher that is based around our ability to recognize a good strategy when we see it, to work on the implementation of that strategy, and then to see the impact in our own classrooms and respond to it. Um, so in, in the spirit of that idea, we've developed kind of our own um, pyramid of like how to approach the strategies, like which what should you be looking for first in the classroom? And I'm going to just jump to the second most important thing because I feel like it, it ties to what you just said beautifully and that we feel like the second most important thing in the classroom is clarity of expectations. And we feel like there's nothing generic that ties us um, to direct instruction. Um, but we feel like one thing that can't be argued with direct instruction is that it's one of the most efficient methods for making it clear from the outset to your student what you intend for them to learn. So you make it very clear what they should learn, very clear what the expectation is, and then you can enrich that and you can back that strategy up with all of the other strategies that tend to not be as clear in what the learning goals are. So like inquiry-based and other methods that sometimes it's harder to track whether the students are picking up um, what the learning goal is and um, what they're walking away with, what they're retaining and stuff like that. So I feel like, uh, and I'm getting to a question at some point. Uh, I feel like, that we want to make it clear, um, just like you have, that there's nothing tying us to direct instruction, that we we shouldn't be emotional about any particular strategy, that we just want to look and see what the, the research says, what it bears out. And the only reason why we might, um, you know, promote direct instruction when we do is because we feel like it's important to be clear about what the expectation, what the learning goals are and how to do a specific task before you, you really let the students kind of go off and spend a lot of time just exploring the concept on their own. Um, so the question is, um, uh, do you feel like teachers, their propensity to maybe be emotionally attached to a strategy is what hinders them from being able to operate in a, a more professional way when it comes to um, teaching in the classroom? Or is there something policy-wise in the way we do teaching um, that is actually promoting that? So is it, is it an individual thing or is it more of a, is it more of a, um, a systematic thing or institutional thing? argument here, but it's, it's all of those. Um, obviously, it comes back to this notion of how you think about your own teaching, how you think about what evidence is. If evidence is just your experience, I think that's very limiting and quite dangerous, obviously. If mm -hmm. evidence is just the research articles, it's just as dangerous. It's about how you interpret those. It's how you do that in a collective. Um, we haven't really talked about that, but that notion of using the incredible power of teachers to critique each other. Now, obviously, we need to do that in a safe environment, in a trusting environment, and that's where the power of the principal becomes very powerful. 
Well, we have had your time for an hour. Um, we can continue going if you like, or we can let you go. Um, how are you doing on time, John? I'm doing on time. I'm just looking at, right at the moment, I'm looking at the time times because it's very soon I have to take my dogs for a walk. Okay. And so you're going to have to argue with them. Okay, fair enough. That sounds good. I've, I've got time. Oh, you do have time. Oh, my apologies. Okay. I do have time. Yeah, okay, that's, great. That's you argue with them. They're quite happy at the moment. Well, I when they start barking, I'll have to deliver the message to go. Okay, uh, that I completely understand that. I have a husky, and she's very demanding about her walks. Um, exactly. So uh, I have a follow up question on your your previous one. You know, I noticed you on your list. You have cooperative learning at one place. Um, pretty 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 close to that point four mark where you um, kind of talk about whether or not it's of high impact. But you have jigsaw. The jigsaw method is a high yield strategy right near the top, and uh, jigsaw is technically considered a, a cooperative learning strategy. But to me, I think jigsaw really stands out from the other cooperative learning strategies in that it's almost like a, a version of cooperative learning that's also direct instruction. It's almost like the two ideas paired because we have much more time for um, high quality instruction to happen and research to happen within the jigsaw method. I was just curious if. You had any comments as to why you felt Jigsaw was so much higher than other cooperative yeah. learning strategies? A few years ago, um, we did a another synthesis, and instead of asking the question in visible learning about the effects on achievement, we asked about the effects on how students learn. And it turned out in that manner synthesis that there was a massive moderator, that the same strategies you learn for learning the content, the facts, the surface level, cannot be effective, and not necessarily effective, when you do the deeper or more relationship or the transfer. And so that distinction between surface and deep is really critical. And it's probably summed up in your language with Webb's uh, depth of knowledge and the cognitive complexity in terms of the early stage and the latter stages. And so let me take, for instance, um, cooperative learning or even problem-based learning or inquiry learning. Problem-based learning and inquiry learning are notoriously low, very, very low effect sizes. Mm -hmm. Turns out that it's a matter of when you implement them. That's much more critical than the notion of whether it's direct instruction or not. And this is where going to take, for example, problem-based learning. If you, it's, it, like, it's used a lot in first-year medicine. We know from 17 meta-analysis it has a zero to negative effect. But when you introduce them to fourth-year medicine, it's very successful. And that gives the hint to the answer. If the students go into a problem-based learning before they have the content, the vocabulary, the knowledge, those kids are left behind. No matter how seductive or convincing you want to argue to me that problem-based learning is the answer. And the reason it hasn't worked is it's been often implemented too early. Cooperative learning is the same kind of thing. It's a generic notion, whereas in Jigsaw, it's quite specific. And if you know the Jigsaw method, the first two steps of the four steps of Jigsaw are about making sure every student has sufficient knowledge of the content and the vocabulary, which could be done, as you say, by direct instruction, or it could be done by peer instruction and the way the whole jigsaw set up. And in the last two phases, it goes into the B. Like, one of the things we did is we took Bob Mazzano's recent book of 485 teaching strategies, and we classified them in terms of surface and D, how effective they were. Only about 30 survived, because all the others were so generic, mm. that this is why there's a problem with them. If the kid is still 
trying to learn the vocabulary and you go to problem-based learning, it's not going to help them. If yeah. you do a direct instruction method that only stays at the, at the vocabulary level, the kid's not ever going to get deep. And so one of our major messages is this is the right time to introduce. And so we actually call our model, model the Kenny Rogers model. You're going to know when to hold them, you're going to know when to play them. And so that's another complexity. But that's really what we're trying to say now in our work is don't just go with a high-yield strategy because some high-yield strategies are good for surface level and some are good for deep. Now, guys, there's a conspiracy problem here. When we go to the students and ask them what do they want more of, the kids above average want more straight road didactic teaching, vocabulary, surface level learning. The kids below average want you to shut up, listen to them, help them understand what's going on. And so we've got to be careful here that even with the students, that we're not privileging those students who just want the surface level learning. Now, cutting a long story short, what we're saying in our work now is that when you come to look at success criteria or learning interests, you should have two. One about the surface, one about the deep. I go a step further. There should be two parts to any assignment. And we say to the students, this is the knowledge and the vocabulary we want you to know, and this is the deep part. And then when you go to a method like Jigsaw, you can see why it's stunningly successful, because it's one of the very few methods, Pardia would be another one, the very few methods that we have out there that actually take into account the right time to teach. Yeah, it's 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 really um, funny, and we're. I mean, this might be confirmation bias because we've been heavily inspired by your research um, and been following it for a long time. But a, a lot of what you're said you're saying here is is right in line with what we've been previously saying on the podcast and writing in our articles. And we did a very long podcast on inquiry based learning and a very long article on inquiry based learning, and we we came to the same conclusion that although direct instruction was more effective. Um, overall for instruction that there was still a place for inquiry-based learning and it was more about identifying the correct time for um, inquiry-based learning. And uh, it's really awesome to, to hear you agreeing with us. Um. <laughs> Here's a new challenge for you and your listeners. Why don't we start to invent some new strategies where we combine them? Can you imagine direct instruction and um, reciprocal teaching put together? Who mm. wouldn't like the acronym DIRT? Um, why can't we start putting some of these strategies together and get away from this religious desire movement that people have a particular strategy that works at one time for a certain group of kids and they gener- generalize it to them all? Now, I'm not saying inquiry-based learning can't involve the teaching of the content. It typically doesn't. But imagine if you put two or three of these things together. There you go. There's a challenge for you. Come up with a, um, an article or a podcast of putting different strategies together that one that maximizes the surface and one that maximizes the deep, and I think you're on an absolute winner. Genius. Well, this leads me to my, my follow-up question with Forvis, which is just, um, are there any other strategies that you see on your list that appear low, but where you think it's not so much that they're low impact, that they're misapplied, or that they have a place, and that they should be used for a specific time or um, situation? Well, I'd probably with few exceptions say that would be the case with most of the actual teaching strategies that are littered throughout the, the visible learning work. Um, I think um, you know, some of the very contentious ones near the bottom like class sites, if we better understood why it typically hasn't made a, a great impact, we can actually start to change what we do so that it does have a much higher impact. And so yeah, I actually can get quite fascinated with that question because 
And that's what actually matters to do, a metasynthesis of the learning strategies, to try and understand why some of the methods which sound attractive don't mm-hmm. actually work. The fascination is when you go to the top of the chart, things above the average, the two things really stick out. It's about how teachers think and it's about how students think. And it's teaching kids the strategies to go about the thinking. It's teaching in the past opportunities for kids to articulate and make more visible how they're thinking so that teachers can enact. That's the thing at the top. And I think many of those strategies can actually help that if we saw that as the focus. But we don't. We tend to get sold on the way in which we do things. And that's what drives me crazy here when you see that expertise and how we evaluate. And my argument always is, is that you... Uh, Robert and Joseph are the only people in the classroom paid to be there. So you're the ones that should change the most. You should adapt and be more flexible in your teaching. And when I see the word differentiation, so often it's how do we differentiate the activities so different kids do different things. I want to turn that on its head and say, no, how do we differentiate how we teach at the right time, at the right moment, to, 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 to the right level of depth? So, um, I was wondering because we, we've actually had, um, a bit of a debate about this on our podcast. Um, and we were, we were speculating why class size was so low when every teacher would, would imagine that it would be so fundamental to the success of their students. If only the class sizes were, were smaller, um, everything would be solved. And we've had our own speculations, but before we, we get into anything like that. We just want to know what, what do you think is the reason for um, class sizes being so low on the list? Or, um, because you've already, you've already insinuated that it, it's, um, it's something that we will see later on the impact of it. What, what, why do you think it, it ranks so low? Illustrating what the first answer to the question is, we know 
that in most cases when teachers go into different size classes, they don't teach, they don't change how they teach. The other issue is that, and let me ask you this question. I'm going to come into your class of 30 kids, and I'm going to randomly take out 10 to 15, or you can take out any five. What would you choose? <laughs> wow. What an, what a philosophical, ethical question. Um, uh, <laughs> Which one are you not going to answer? No, well, I actually, I, I think I'm, I might be the wrong person to ask because um, I, I think I would have to spend a long time considering it because I wouldn't just uh, respond. Because I think the obvious answer that would jump oh, to a lot yeah, of teachers' yeah, yeah, mind is take out the challenging students, right? But I'm, I'm going to give you a different question. Okay, sorry. Do you want to, if I give you the option, do you want 40 kids who don't want to be there or studying? Do you want 40 kids who do want to be there or 20 kids who don't want to be there? You know what? I, 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 I'm the anomaly because I've spent most of my teaching career working with challenging students and I actually like the, the challenge of challenging students. But... I know where you're going, guys. I, I, I won't push you any further, but let me come back. Okay. It turns out that the optimal class size is five less than you have. Those difficult kids, those naughty kids, they do take up an incredible amount of time. They do distract from the other kids. They are really the issue here. And this is why when I'm asked a question about class size, it's dealing with those kids. Now, like you, someone has to deal with them. We have to build up that expertise to deal with them. We have to want to deal with them. They're not easy. And so the other point I'm making is class size is obviously is sometimes a proxy. It's a proxy for those getting rid of those naughty kids. For a parent, it's a proxy for thinking wrongly that their kid is going to get more individual attention. It's a proxy for principals because staff-student ratios, which is not the same, but staff-student ratios is often the way schools are funded. So everybody has an incentive to reduce class size. And the point I was making earlier is I'm not against reducing class size. I think it's an incredibly expensive intervention if all we do is not change how we teach and just have smaller classes. But what an incredible opportunity for us to do research to understand what it's like. I'm doing a lot of research at the moment on the opposite. I'm doing a lot of research in classes of 90 to 100 kids with three teachers working together. When you see it working, it is beyond stunning. You see incredible things going on in those classes. You see teachers doing totally different things. They're spending a lot more time with their students and less time of preparation. Mm. And so class size isn't really the issue. It's how do we optimize that expertise how do we optimize the conditions we're given to really make a difference? That's that's a really interesting answer. Um, we want we want to be cognizant of your time, and we we think we are we're at about an hour for this podcast, which is typically about how long we go. Um, so we want to ask you if you have any final thoughts you want to add to our listeners. Well, I'd ask you, Jason, Robert. I'd ask all your listeners to answer that question. No, they impact. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we've really enjoyed interviewing John Hattie, and he's expressed interest in coming back on the podcast. So if anyone has any follow-up questions they'd like to ask him, please feel free to, uh, send, us to send us those messages over Facebook, and we'll think about implementing them in our next interview. Um, we really appreciate your listens. If you like the podcast, make sure you like and subscribe, and uh, leave us a review. Thanks for your time. Until next time.